Hello, and welcome to an all-new season of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our first episode this season, celebrating recent work by Isabel Wakuja Alonso, is drawn from a panel brought together on January 26, 2023, to discuss Isabel's recently published book, Radio for the Millions, Hindu-Urdu Broadcasting Across Borders. Isabel Wakuja Alonso is an assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. Her book, published in 2023, is a transnational history of radio broadcasting in Hindi and Urdu from the late colonial period, around 1920, through the early post-independence era, around 1980. It argues that the medium of radio enabled listeners and broadcasters to contest the cultural, linguistic, and political agendas of the British colonial administration and the subsequent independent Indian and Pakistani governments. The book draws on the dissertation she wrote in fulfillment of the requirements for her doctorate at the University of Texas at Austin, which won the Sardar Patel Award for, quote, the best dissertation in any aspect of modern India defended at a U.S. institution, end quote. Let's listen to Isabel talk briefly about her project, one that was 12 years in the making. Here is Isabel. In May 2007, The then 75-year-old Bombay broadcaster Amin Sayani visited Pakistan for the first time. And Sayani spoke before the packed Arts Council Auditorium in Karachi about his lifelong affair with Hindi film songs and about his career with Radio Salon. Radio Salon was a commercial station located in the nearby country of Salon, which is now Sri Lanka, but with a strong ties to the film industry in Bombay. And that night, Sayani charmed the audience with his characteristic greeting of Beheno or Bayo, sisters and brothers and played a remake of his old radio programs, which likely sounded like this. So what you just heard is the voice of Amin Sayani introducing Hindi film songs from the 1950s and talking about his iconic radio program, Binaka Gidmala. That night, some members of the audience cheered enthusiastically, while others quietly shed tears, overwhelmed by nostalgia. This was Sayani's first and only visit to Pakistan during his more than 40-year career. But it was clear from the audience's enthusiasm that this Indian broadcaster's voice had long been part of the Pakistani soundscape. So Sayani's visit to Pakistan raises many questions about radio and sound's place in the subcontinent's popular cultures, but also about the medium's entanglement in the nation-making project that so profoundly shaped the 20th century. What is the significance of film songs and film circulation on the airwaves 
What are the aesthetic and commercial implications of this convergence? What was radio's role in the end of British rule in the Indian subcontinent? What do radio salons, robust transnational republics, tell us about the culture and political possibilities of the medium and about the contentious politics of language in the region? And above all, the stories here to ask this, as Ayani's stories ask us, what was radio's role in the making and unmaking of the subcontinent borders? And these are the questions that animate the book. The book, as you know already, brings together um, two fields that are rarely in conversation. So first, um, the rich and growing literature of sound studies, especially works on radio, but also 20th century South Asian history, and particularly works on the end of empire and the anti-colonial movement, independence, and the subsequent partition of India. Now, the study is organized around language. Hindi and Urdu are North Indian languages with over half a billion speakers throughout South Asia, and they share the same grammar and vocabulary of colloquial speech, but they're written in different scripts, and they have developed distinct literary traditions. And during the communal tensions that ultimately culminated in the 1947 partition of India into independent India and Pakistan, Hindi became increasingly associated with Hindu communities and Urdu with Muslims. The study analyzes various radio stations that broadcast in Hindi and or Urdu, including the national stations All India Radio, Radio Pakistan, the BBC Hindustani Services, and of course, um, Radio Salon. But it also analyzes stations located outside the Indian subcontinent and the UK that aim their services at South Asian population. And the book consists of three parts, and each part focuses on a key moment when radio became a matter of contentious debate and on a genre of radio that, is, that was especially important at the time that I studied. So I look at news during World War II, music during the post-colonial decade in India and Pakistan, and what I call dramatic radio during the 1965 war and its aftermath. And each section covers key moments during which the colonial administration, the Indian government, and the Pakistani government turned to the medium of radio to assert their legitimacy and authority. And in pursuing the research, I consulted sources a variety of them, including official records, some um, recordings, broadcasts, radio journals, magazines, memoirs, and most importantly, interviewed broadcasters and radio personalities. And I followed the radio waves whose boundaries were determined not by the physical borders that are imposed by newly formed governments, but by the strength of transmitters and radio deceivers, and most importantly, by the programming preferences of listeners. So in this way, the book attempts to present a new geography of radio or a geography of radio centered on language groups rather than national or regional borders or even radio stations. And then I want to just very briefly outline some of the um, arguments that I hope to make in the book. The book argues that despite the British, Indian and Pakistani politicians repeated and consistent efforts to usurp the medium for state purposes, the medium of radio in South Asia effectively contested the cultural, linguistic and political agendas of the British colonial administration and later independent Indian and Pakistani governments. In conversation with works on sound studies, I also developed the concept of radio resonance. And this is to analyze how conversation, rumor, and gossip could intensify, expand, and enrich radio broadcasts. The important part is that radio programs influence extended beyond the reach of receivers because radio was not only listened to, but also talked about. And that conversation was not supplementary but actually central to the medium's reception. To talk was, in a way, to listen. Now, this might seem quite a simple argument to make, but it actually forces us to seriously reconsider foundational ideas, and in particular, rethink the division between orality and orality. And then third, a guiding conviction of this book has been that the study of media forms, and in particular, sound media, is fundamental to the study of history. 
and that radio history is history. So attention to sources, um, to sound sources, forces to rethink, just to begin, the standard periodization of the region's history. Moving away from the nation-making events of 1947 and 1971, the independence of India and Pakistan, and later Bangladesh in 1971, and recasting World War II and the 1965 Indo-Pakistan War long dismissed as watershed events. But most importantly, the book's chapters together make it clear that Pakistan and Indians' shared history did not end. Finally, to end, um, I hope that um, the book shows the value of three things. One is that moving beyond the value of moving beyond official archives, national archives and imperial archives, and to really search beyond that, which takes time and dedication and above all resilience. Second, I hope it shows the value of interdisciplinary research, which requires simply a lot more work, but also a lot more risk because it means you open up yourself up to criticisms from other fields as well. And I also hope the book shows the value of maybe non-conventional positionalities. Um, I draw on my own experience growing up in the US-Mexico borderlands, which I believed attuned me to the ways borders could be both simultaneously rigid and porous. I want to end by thanking the people who made this possible. Mm. Yes, my friends, my mentors, uh, fantastic editor Philip sitting here, uh, my children, my husband, uh, my family, but also the broadcasters and listeners who told me their stories, trusted them with them, and shared their collections. And I wish to name just a few, Yawar Mahendi, Mariam Kasimi, Farooq Jafar, Jyoti Parmar, and Amin Sayani, who is reading the book now. Again, that was Isabel Wakuha Alonso talking about the process of researching and writing her new book. Next, We'll hear from panelist Dolores Inez Casillas. She's a professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies and director of the Chicano Studies Institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her research focuses on immigrant engagement with U.S. Spanish language and bilingual media, the representation of accented Spanish and English languages within popular culture, as well as the integration of ethnic studies within K-12 schools. Dolores Inez Casillas herself has published an award-winning book on Spanish-language radio, along with co-editing a number of other volumes. Here is Dolores Inez Casillas. I enjoyed this book not just as a scholar of radio and sound, but as someone who studies immigrant engagement with Spanish-language media in the United States. I specifically look at the ways in which we listen to Spanish-language radio, the immigrant-dominant population. So this study of sound, as she argues, joins others in insisting that radio plays unique and affective roles in various state-making and often unstate-making projects. Her engagement with transnational as well as U.S. ethnic or what she terms sometimes as minoritized radio studies is very unique. And I can't stress how placing those in conversation takes a lot of nuance and it takes a lot of reading and it takes a lot of thinking into seeing like where are the parallels, but where are the distinctions that should be very much articulated. And so she has me thinking a lot more about India from the 1930s to the 1980s and also has taken the first step in trying to place a lot of global studies scholarship also in conversation with each other. So as a medium, broadcast radio, so speaking from a radio studies perspective, has increasingly been neglected in the mainstream media in favor of our more digital darlings. And this means our podcasts 
our Spotify lists, our Pandora settings. Listening to radio, though, in whatever format has always been characterized by class, race, and I argue in my work, one's legal status. And she definitely argues by language in her work. Radio for the Millions responds to the classic lyric and argument that, quote, video killed the radio star, unquote. <laughs> she responds with a book that traces just how essential listening and talking about the news, dramas, and singing along to film soundtracks worked hand in hand to bolster how we view television and film today. Alonso joins a bout of recent publications within just the last 10 years with the argument that no, broadcast radio cannot be killed. I have long argued that the abandonment of broadcast radio across different Global South countries often lend itself to have the most disenfranchised seize it. Not just the simple affordability or relative affordability to radio, especially as, as opposed to an internet connection or Wi-Fi connection, but it unapologetically always directs its attention to the disenfranchised listener. So this has really very much propelled its growth. And I have to admit that I've often have relied on numbers. And this is when reading her work has really challenged me. I insist in my work that yes, Spanish language broadcast radio is significant because it's in the top five radio markets in the US, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, and Miami. And that we routinely see Spanish language call numbers on subway stations and bus stations. But Radio for the Millions convinced me that an argument about a non-English language medium and a media set definitely considered the uncool cousin within the media family does not need numbers. Alonso writes that no, there wasn't a record number of radio sets sold during her decade of study. And no, there's no way to track how many people were tuning into specific shows. And that said, an impact does not need to be quantified and an impact can still be felt quite palatably. Alonso's greatest intervention in radio studies and sound studies is definitely in her insightful concept about radio resonance. And I can't stress this point enough. Radio resonance accounts for ways in which talking about what we listen to creates effective bonds. And this might be something somewhat foreign to us now because we see a TikTok trend, we do it and we talk about it, but it really is foundational. So before you talk about that TikTok trend, think about how that started with radio, right? She's reminding us about how that was foundational during that time. That rumor, gossip, conversation aren't empty fillers, but they're actually creative everyday forms of talking about politics. Radio offered fodder for communal get-togethers and these genres is a different way of understanding the national politics of the time. In this manner, radio became something we not only listened to, but something we talked about. Radio could really, Alonso argues, reach the millions precisely because of the resounding chatter. She stresses that despite radio's real-time capabilities, which offers transgressive possibilities, it's also useful to explore how radio shows and messages resonated over time and not just in real time. And this has challenged my work in knowing, for instance, I write about warnings about INS or now ICE sightings in public. People will call radio stations and over the air use code words. So the 1980s, they would say, I have a migraine on third and west and people would know there was an INS sighting there, the migra migraine. And 10 years ago in Los Angeles, we had a bout of raids 
courtesy of our then President Trump. And somebody went on the air and they named off an intersection and started playing the jingle, Ice, Ice Baby, <laughs> to warn everybody. And this was, I have always argued, it's because in, it's in real time and it's not documented and it's this and it's that. And she reminds me that it's not just the instance of something being real time, it's that it resonates over time. It's that it's 10 years later and I'm still talking about it. It's that I choose what code words to share in public and whatnot. And secondly, another thing about resonance, I was thinking about the occupied movement and all the restrictions we have on sound and permissions to broadcast sound. And somebody would speak and then other people would repeat it so the people in the back could hear. So that sense of resonance that I don't need your permission to be loud or to, to um, continue with this protest, it centers around sound. So Radio for the Millions surprised me when I first heard about her initial arguments. We have actually only Zoomed once. So this is what happens when you find someone on Twitter that actually will respond and Zoom with you. And then I read her manuscript and it stunned me. Here she was gently yet adamantly arguing to look at radio as much more than some kind of window towards the past or to look at it as the historical record to explain these turbulent moments in India. But instead, she insists quite convincingly that this is a recovery project, a form of decolonizing archival sources. Yet she's also decolonizing us and our often too stubborn ways in which we define legitimate sources, which are often in print. Or we fetishize that radio can only be studied through documented, well-preserved audio. She's encouraging historians to not use radio as a way of providing context, but to truly use radio and archive as a form of engagement for their study. Or what she asks throughout the book, what a radio host asks this, and then she ends the book by asking herself, where are you and where is your voice? And that to me, I don't, you didn't specifically tie this, but I'm like, this is her engagement with the book. She starts by talking about a radio host challenging her engagement and then ends the book by asking us also the readers, what is your voice, right, in this listen? Again, that was Dolores Inez Casillas. Up next, we'll hear from Debashree Mukherjee, an assistant professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies at Columbia University. She worked in Mumbai's film and television industries from 2004 to 2007 and is a scholar of film and media specializing in South Asian cinemas with methodological investments in film and media studies, feminist decolonial historiography, environmental humanities, and technology studies. Her book, Bombay Hustle, Making Movies in a Colonial City, presents a practitioner's eye view of filmmaking activity in late colonial Bombay approaching cinema as an ecology of energy relations that connect the studio and the screen. Here is Debashree Mukherjee. Histories of sound are notoriously difficult to study. The soundscapes of the past are ephemeral and elusive. Textual archives can record dates, names of places, even sensory descriptions, but they rarely convey a soundscape. And sound has also occupied a lower status in histories of the senses compared to, say, vision. And accordingly, sonic events have been under-archived and under-preserved. To add to this, ultimately, the human voice itself is a notoriously elusive entity to even define. It has an ambivalent ontological status. 
As Ana Maria Ochoa has noted, the voice possesses an ambiguous materiality because the voice is materially constituted simultaneously through the body by means of vibrating vocal cords and the world by means of the air that makes the cords move. And yet the voice doesn't belong fully to either the human body or the world, something in between. Now, all of this preface is to say that histories of sound are very difficult to write about, which is one of the challenges that Isabel has confronted, I think, so admirably and with some very innovative and creative methods. Radio for the Million spans about six decades in the history of the Indian subcontinent, roughly from the 1930s to the early 80s, and is structured according to three pivotal historical moments. And Isabel talks a little bit about why she chooses this frame of moments. Moments of social and political transition or upheaval, and moments wherein the radio as a social and a technological space becomes a very important historical actor. And those moments are uh, kind of structuring the three parts of the book, the Second World War, the Partition, and the 1965 Indo-Pak War. Through a study of radio and the politics of sound, the book points to very important sonic strategies for state making, as well as sonic challenges to South Asian nationalism. What's important to note is that of the many approaches that are available to someone that wants to do a history of radio, what Isabel has chosen is to approach radio largely as an embodied and an affective site of experience in order to situate it within a very layered politics of the region. And she very explicitly says that this is not a history, radio history of South Asia, but a very specific study of language groups, right? So it's a Hindi Urdu kind of a story. Now approached as an experiential form, rather than as a purely technical form or a purely ideological form, the question of evidence and radio becomes even more sticky. How do we excavate histories of listening as experience? So here Isabel comes up with a very important concept, radio resonance, to argue that we cannot judge the material and social presence of radio in late colonial and post-partition South Asia simply by judging the numbers of radio sets or radio stations. Rather, we must pay attention to the ways in which radio reverberates, resonates, far beyond that first immediate encounter between a listener and a machine, and further into widening circles of talk, gossip, rumor, excited chatter, all of which relay the messages and the meanings of radio to ever widening communities of listeners. So again then, what can an archive of radio resonance look like? And what is the evidence for the centrality of talk about radio to the history of radio? So Isabel mobilizes multiple methods and sources here. And I think this is one of the great gifts of the book is that it's truly an exceptional work of archive production, not just recovery excavation, but helping constitute a very disparate kind of array of, of materials into a kind of archive that we can now recognize. And, and I think that's a real innovation. Several methods are used from close reading, and I really enjoyed the moments of close reading of advertisements, of letters, interviews with, and the archives, some of the sources, I just want to kind of list them, colonial records, listener letters, interviews with broadcasters, diaries by fans, radio magazines and film magazines, 
and some very remarkable radio archives in Islamabad of Radio Pakistan's broadcasting during the 1965 war. Now, the radio played different roles at these different moments, fluctuating in its ideological resonance between linguistic nationalism, anti-colonial sentiment, and an evasive, affective community of lovers of music. In this, I find that the figure of Noor Jahan, actually, Malika Tarannum, becomes a symbol of the radio's fluctuating meanings in Northern and Western India and Pakistan. Because Noor Jahan could represent, for example, in the 1960s, a very Pakistani Punjabi nationalism. And that's the way her voice and her singing is mobilized. Um, at the same time, and literally at the same time, in the same time period, she could also represent a symbol of a pre-partition nostalgic vision of a united India, um, again, on the radio, through her voice. So here I'd like to note a very exciting, if slightly slow emergence in media histories of South Asia, which is a growing interest and a growing effort in narrating cross-border histories of film and radio, and with it, paying attention to cross-border archives. Um, Lotte Hook has been doing some of this work for some time. You can see some of this in her essay called Cross-Wing Filmmaking, East Pakistani Urdu Films and Their Traces in the Bangladesh Film Archive. 2023 is an excellent year with Isabel's book and Salma Siddiq's forthcoming book, which is titled Evacuee Cinema, Bombay and Lahore in Partition Transit, 1940-1960. Now, all three authors have chosen to revisit very complex histories of political and social transition, all around the very vexed story of nation-state formations in South Asia, from partition to the creation of Bangladesh. And all three follow the media, so to speak. It's partly because they choose to follow the media that some of these cross-border connections are more strongly enabled to tell truly cross-border histories. I think this is a real achievement in modern South Asian historiography, which has for long had a tendency to adopt by default some of the nationalist kind of restrictions in terms of which archives and sites we can study. To sum this part of it up is what I'm trying to say is that border crossing is then for Isabel and for this book, both a method and a subject, which is attentively tracked via concepts of sonic circulation through again border crossing, citational practices that you already mentioned, picking up say Alex Chavez's sounds of crossing kind of concepts and many sources such as listener letters. That, unfortunately, is all the time we have for today. I want to thank Isabel Wakuja Alonso and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you, as well, for joining us for an all-new season of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Isabel Wakuja Alonso. The title of her new book is Radio for the Millions, Hindu-Urdu Broadcasting Across Borders. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.